0: Hi, this is Patrick Barrett, co-host of Unknown Orbits Podcast. I'm here to tell you about my latest novel, The Nowhere Navy, a military science fiction novel set in the distant future. It's basically McHale's Navy in space. It's on Amazon.com. I hope you'll enjoy it.
1: Stop the presses. Pull out the
0: front page.
2: Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys
0: from Milwaukee? Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee.
1: Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to
0: Roddenberry. Welcome to Episode 48 of Unknown Orbits, The Great Nebraska Sea, by Alan Donzig. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. This week's episode is a much-anthologized classic gem written by, we believe, an unknown author almost. It tells the story of scientists discovering that the Kiowa fault in Colorado, which I don't even know if there is such a thing as a Kiowa fault in Colorado. I didn't check. At any rate, the Kiowa fault is part of a much larger fault system. And in 1973, this story was published in 1963 in Galaxy, land east of the fault begins slipping over the course of several months, causing rivers, including the Mississippi, to flood the new lowlands. So flooded lowlands exist in the middle of the country where the Mississippi and other rivers are located. And eventually the Gulf Coast collapses and the sea rushes in, creating a new sea in the middle of America as large as the Mediterranean, right in the middle of the continent. And the really interesting thing about this story, and one of the reasons I liked it, was it presents a disaster scenario and then basically... It turns out it was all for the best in the long run. Everybody adjusts, and they begin building harbors and tourist locations and fishing villages along this edge of this new sea, and everybody lives happily ever after. What I like
1: about it is that it's presented as a historical article on how the Great Inland Sea came to be.
0: Yes, exactly, and that's really unusual that... There's like no human interest at all in this story. There's no characters. There's not a scientist who's predicting that this is going to happen and trying to stop it, or the engineers trying to save Nebraska and Kansas or whatever, and none of that. Just here's what happened, and it turned out okay, actually.
1: It goes right up to the edge of being satire.
0: It does have kind of that almost satirical tone to it. It's a very tongue-in-cheek sort of tone, especially the end where it's like, and then they just moored their motorboats along the New Sea and had a grand old time going fishing and water skiing.
1: There a lot of fun is in the small, realistic details.
0: Clearly, a lot more could have been done with this idea. Could have been a much more epic story, maybe with multiple character viewpoints, like a farmer in Kansas or a family living along the Mississippi or... Could easily have been a multi-viewpoint novel. At least a novelette. And it could have been an epic story, but it wasn't. It's been anthologized a number of times. Now, part of that might be due to the fact that it's in the public domain. Is it? Yes, it is a public domain story. So that might have something to do with it. I think it's not only well-regarded, I don't know if well-regarded is the right word, it's beloved. It's beloved by science fiction readers and I think probably some science fiction writers. I would
1: guess that it was fondly remembered more by writers than by readers.
0: As I said, it was published 1963 in Galaxy. The author, Alan Donzig, I did extensive research and I couldn't find anything about him at all. He is a, just a complete cipher.
1: I turned my hand at it and I couldn't find him either. He's not listed in the largest science fiction Encyclopedia. No,
0: not there. He's not listed in the index of science fiction. So I turned to ChatGPT and I asked ChatGPT, can you give me a background on Alan Danzig, writer of The Great Nebraska Sea? And here's what ChatGPT told me. I apologize, but I couldn't find any information about a writer named Alan Danzig who authored the book The Great Nebraska Sea. Up to my knowledge cutoff in September 21, it's possible that this author is relatively unknown or hasn't gained significant recognition in the literary world yet. It's also possible that the author's name or the book title could be misspelled or incorrect.
1: A lot of that seems like boilerplate to yeah, me. Yeah, it
0: seems like some bullshit, actually. For those of you who haven't played around with ChatGPT, it is capable of producing bullshit.
1: Since you've brought up ChatGPT, I think people are overreacting. When you feed it a story prompt, what you get out of it, in my opinion exactly matches the style of a middle reader book.
0: Yes, and it's like a seventh grade level reading level.
1: Yeah, just a little bit repetitive.
0: Yeah, I've tried that experiment too, and this is a little bit of a diversion, but we need to fill some time on this particular episode. You're not supposed to say that. (laughs) Partly because we have no idea who the hell Ellen Danzig is. So yeah, ChatGPT, you can't write a novel with ChatGPT. First of all, it only spits out like 200-word chunks at a time. And you'd have to spit out chunk after chunk after chunk after chunk after chunk, cut and paste it all together, and then do major editing just to get it to be coherent, You know, which you could do, but why not just take the time that you're spending doing that to actually write a novel, even a bad novel? Yeah. But I'm convinced that Amazon in particular is working behind the scenes with real AI. And ChatGPT is just basically an app that's been offered by the people behind OpenAI. So it's designed with limitations, like the 200-word limitation. Yeah. If you try to ask it to write a dirty story, it'll tell you, sorry, I can't do that. So it does have all kinds of limitations on it. But Amazon, I'm convinced they must have access to a high-level AI system of their own that They're actively working on being able to have it write a full novel in the popular genres like romance novels, crime novels, science fiction, mystery. I think that's being worked on as we speak. Eventually, you're going to see novels popping up on Amazon under pseudonyms that were actually written by AI.
1: And the dangerous part is that it doesn't have to write novels that are great it just has to write them good enough for people to buy them
0: what it'll do in the short run is it'll trim the bottom third of self-published novels the ones that have bad covers that are badly written repetitive or rip off other people's ideas it'll easily replace all of those i think what amazon will do in conjunction with that is to slash their royalty rates down to the point where a lot of writers are going to say it's just not worth it to put my book up on Amazon anymore because they're only paying a pittance in terms of royalties to me, and I feel like I'm being ripped off. So a lot of writers will pull their books off Amazon, leave Amazon forever, and Amazon will be fine with that because they'll fill up the vacuum left by the departure of actual writers with these AI-developed books. And the change to the casual reader... To the consumer of books, it'll be invisible because they'll just see some pseudonym, some writer who they assume is a person, and they write a, let's say, a Navy SEALs action series. And it's just like the ones that they like that they've bought previously. So they just keep consuming and it's imperceptible to them that they're actually now consuming computer generated content and nothing will change as far as that goes. But the thing that'll change is that writers will suddenly be without a platform.
1: The ascension of the mediocre.
0: Yeah, but to be honest, there's probably tons and tons of mediocre novels out there on Amazon already written by actual human beings. There's this whole phenomenon that's been around since the beginning of Kindle where these guys would go on to publish a book. It's like, how I published 38 books in one year on Amazon, you know, and they're writing a whole novel in like two weeks and then just spewing it out on on Amazon without much editing or and it's just garbage to be honest with you
1: because once they make the sale they don't care what people think about it
0: right and another thing that i think could happen as well this is something that i've ranted about before on the podcast the famous best selling writers who whore out their name and oh, I publish hate that. you know uh, the latest novel by Clive Custler written by Jim Smith And it's just using their name to sell the book, but they had nothing to do with the writing of the book. Amazon could replace that whole process by, let's say that Stephen King died tomorrow. Two years from now, Amazon goes to his heirs and says, we'll give you a pile of money if you let us just use Stephen King's name. And then they'll publish new novels by Stephen King that were written by AI based on his
1: book. Which studied his style. his
0: style. and the type of the book that he wrote, yeah. So I don't know how we got onto this diversion, but I think it was something I needed to get off my chest anyway.
1: Can I wrap around to what I may have discovered about Alan Danzig?
0: Yes, please do.
1: Now, I will say ahead of time, I have no proof of this connection. But this story, as I said, treads on the heels of satire. It's well done. Also, being a historical account, it's written in the style of newspaper stories.
0: Right. It does read like a newspaper account.
1: I did find one guy. His name was Jerome Allen Danzig, and he was a reporter. He was a reporter at the beginning of his career. And in 1963, when the story was published, he would have been 50 years old. It's a pretty good age for someone to write this story.
0: You know who it reminds me of? It reminds me of Corpus Earthling by Louis Charbonneau. That's episode... 11 That we did previously, an episode of The Outer Limits based on a book by Louis Charbonneau. Louis Charbonneau was also a newspaper reporter who wrote novels on the side, and he was not a particularly good writer. So, yeah, it reminds me of him. If that's the case, if this really is the same guy, it definitely reminds me of him.
1: Imagine he's a reporter for a couple decades, he's written news stories and decides he wants to do some fiction. That's a story that has played out many, many times. So he writes a few stories. Sends them out, and then he gets a better job. And in this case, he started working for Nelson Rockefeller. So he stops writing stories, but he still has two or three, and he's still sending them out just to see. Maybe his goal is I just want to get one published. And
0: he doesn't even have an agent.
1: Right. And he manages to get the one published. He's happy, and then he goes on to his new career. I keep thinking of in The X-Files, The Cigarette Smoking Man.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. He wrote spy novels. He was an unsuccessful spy novel writer.
1: So I have no proof. If we had had time and resources, I would have tried to track down this guy's obituary and any kind of autobiographies to see if it was mentioned. Going from the route of Alan Danzig writer to...
0: Would you say Jerome Allen Donzig? See, if I would have known that, like you said, we could see if we could try to find a obituary. Yes. Which is pretty easy to find on the internet, generally speaking. I
1: found one, but they wanted me to pay for it.
0: It doesn't really matter. It's a terrific little story. It's a lot of fun. And I do love the sort of, yeah, and everybody lived happily after adjusting to the terrible catastrophe and the death of millions. It is a
1: fun disaster. Kind of like watching the first 20 minutes of a Roland Emmerich
0: movie. Wouldn't it be the last half hour of a Roland Emmerich movie, skipping all the character development before that? Or
1: Oh, yes, you have a point. We don't need the first half hour of showing everyone having their regular cliché day, showing all the good people who will survive and all the rude people who will die.
0: Yeah. So it's a good example of writing a fun idea with no higher purpose. So you have some thoughts on that idea?
1: Yes. Have you ever heard the phrase a comedian's comedian? Yes. A comedian's comedian is a comedian who other comedians appreciate. And the reason is, is they have inside knowledge, they have a different perspective, they see jokes in a different way. This means that a comedian's comedian is doing humor that appeals perhaps more to the comedian than to the audience.
0: Maybe they're uh, on the cutting edge. They're like developing a new form of comedy or something different and novel.
1: That would definitely be the case for a couple. Emo Phillips might qualify. Yeah. That one-liner guy, that one guy who had nothing but one-liner after one-liner. Oh, Mitch Hedberg? That's it. Mitch
0: Hedberg, yeah, you're right. I think he would be an example of a comedian's comedian because he was different. Let's not forget, people don't really understand this, stand-up comedy is writing. You write your material and you work on the material, you do it. And if it doesn't quite work, you go back and you rewrite it to try to get it to work. So it is a writing process, just like the writing process for a short story or a novel or whatever.
1: Absolutely. You are taking someone by the hand, leading him down the garden path, making sure he sees what you want him to see and nothing you don't want him to see until you reach the very end. And release the tension of the story.
0: Yes. I can see where from a technical standpoint, a comedian would see another comedian and see what they were doing. They would see the strings. They would see the foundation behind the structure of the joke and go, wow, that was really good. It's like me. When I watch a movie or I read something, I'm like, boy, that was just a nice piece of writing. I really admire the fact that that line of dialogue or that paragraph was just a nice piece of writing.
1: I do the same when I watch stand-up. And conversely, if someone delivers a bad joke that has potential, I will obsessively rewrite it into the form that it should have been.
0: Right. Now, I don't know whether that applies in this particular case. Well, it could if we're just talking about a writer saying, I really admire what he did. And I do. I kind of admire what he did with this story.
1: So... Obviously, we're saying that this story is a science fiction writer's science fiction. I hate to say it this way, but this story does not have any of the boring old things about characters and plot, and it gets down to just the sugary center of a fun world-building experience. Yeah, And I think that's why it would be fondly remembered by writers and editors building anthologies, and that's why it's been reprinted something like 15 times.
0: Keeping with the comedian theme, kind of like a short but memorably punchy joke. Yes. The sort of thing that Rodney Dangerfield was known for. And he was a comedian's comedian. Yes. So yeah, like a really short but just perfectly crafted joke. Some of those will stick in
1: your head for years because they work so well.
0: Right. Are there other examples in science fiction that we could point to?
1: I don't think there would be a lot of them, but I was wondering if, in a previous episode, The Large Ant is almost like that. Not so much a beloved story by writers, but one that intrigues writers.
0: Yeah, and we just did The Large Ant by Howard Fast in episode 46, and we both agreed that it, it had kind of a bad ending. It was a diversion into philosophical meanderings. It mirrors the structure of this story in that way, that it has an unusual ending, a non-traditional ending, which again, Howard Fast did write a lot of science fiction, but he was not really a well-acclaimed or well-known science fiction writer. And this guy, whoever he was, was obviously not a prolific science fiction writer. So maybe there's that factor of the, I don't want to say amateur, but someone who's not Immersed in the world of science fiction, writing science fiction stories and, and ignoring or not even being aware of the structure and tropes of science fiction? An outsider. An outsider, yeah. Which there have
1: been a few. Sure. One thing on The Large Ant is, as I said, I, I don't think it's a particularly beloved story, but I think it's remembered by writers a lot because essentially it becomes a writing prompt. What would you do with the story if you walk in and see a giant ant? It's an intriguing thought, and I think maybe that's why writers remember it so well. I remembered it, and I I had forgotten all the philosophy.
0: Howard Fast's response was to write a boring digression into philosophy, which would be what a non-science fiction writer might do. Yeah. So to expand on this idea of following science fiction tropes or not following science fiction tropes, we also did, in a previous episode, episode 31, we did The Waveries by Frederick Brown, who was not only a well-established mainstream science fiction writer, but also a editor and publisher. So he really understood science fiction on a granular level, I'm sure. But he had this weird ending in that story where... They didn't stop the alien invasion, they just adjusted to it, and everybody lived happily ever after, just like in the Great Nebraska Sea.
1: Well, now that you mentioned his name, you could make the argument that he was a writer's writer, and that then reminds me of R.A. Lafferty definitely would be a writer's writer.
0: Yeah, and Frederick Brown was known for writing punchy, short little stories. Geese Stacks and other stories, I think, is the volume that most of those are collected in. He was a good humor writer as well. He wrote funny stories. He was accomplished at that. I don't know if it's having a whimsical approach to an idea. You know, you mentioned the idea of having a premise. So the premise is what would happen if the Gulf Coast collapsed and the Gulf flooded the middle of America and made a giant sea in the middle of America? How would you write that story? And your typical science fiction story would do what you mentioned, put characters in there and, you know, how it affected them and how they escaped the peril. And it would probably be a whole novelette rather than a short story. But if you were looking at it with a whimsical view, you'd probably do exactly what Danzig did. Yeah, here's what happened. And then everybody lived happily ever after.
1: Yeah, just uh, scrape the frosting off and throw away the cupcake. Yeah, there you go. Now, I've mentioned R.A. Lafferty, and I think we've had one episode. No,
0: I, we've not done anything by R.A. Lafferty, I don't think. We plan to have Yeah, we, I think they're on our list in a future episode, yes.
1: He was very, very clever, and unfortunately, a very sparse, tight writer, which is not the way you want to go in an industry that pays by the word. Good point. So he has all these short stories, very short stories, that have really fascinating ideas. He's very consistent on that. There's been more than one author that has been like that with uh, good content, but they're undermining themselves by making the story so short.
0: Yeah, but there's a lot to be said for a short sweet little story. And it's really funny that this is a short sweet little story, but it has an epic scope of this destruction of a third of the United States with millions dead.
1: It's the sort of story that makes you want to immediately write something just like it.
0: I don't know if I had that reaction to it, but now that you mention it, that's not a bad idea. Come up with an epic idea, and how can I write the most simple form of this? That would be an interesting writing challenge.
1: Yeah, not necessarily a disaster.
0: Like Mankind's First Meeting of Alien Intelligence. The Greening of Mars. The Greening of Mars. And the
1: Britannica Encyclopedia entry of The Greening of Mars. Yes.
0: And write it as simply and straightforward and whimsical as possible. I like that idea. Yeah. I can't think of an idea to adapt, but I like the basic concept of that.
1: So, any other thoughts, Steve? Well, there is one more thing. We've covered stories that have been TV shows, movies, radio shows. This is the first story that has been turned into a song.
0: How did I miss that?
1: Naturally enough, it's called The Great Nebraska Sea, composed and performed by Blake Hodgetts, and he's given us permission to play a clip at the end of the episode. I'll also include links to his webpage, slipsong.com, and his YouTube video in our episode page on unknownorbits.com.
0: It's a short, sweet story, so we're going to have a short, sweet episode this time. That's it for episode 48. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky.
2: Come and gather round my children, come and listen to a tale of the shifting of a large tectonic plate. Though it may seem full of terror, there is beauty in its wake, and it's part of what has made our nation great. It's an epitaph for those who went to glory for its sake, and a chapter in our nation's history. For the proof of nature's power, sure, there's nothing can compare to the forming of the Great Nebraska Sea. And the land sank down, and the ocean hurried in, and we lost a fifth of our geography. More than 40 million souls. Found their ways, to heavens rolls with the coming of the great Nebraska Sea. Twenty miles east of Denver and the old Kiowa Fault, north to Canada and south to Mexico. No one'd ever taken notice with no reason to suppose that the land may take a mind to up and go. 1973, it was an August hot and dry when a cloud of dust appeared above the plain. But scarce a man could see it, for the augury it was Of the changes that our country would sustain Soon the tremors started shaking Colorado with a will And geologists converged upon the scene And they found that old Kiowa was the one who was at fault With the subsidence like none there'd ever been As the eastward earth sank lower to the west, great cliffs appeared And many were of house and home bereft Get out quick, the leaders cried. There'll be far worse yet to come. When it's over, you can find whatever's left. And the land sank down, and the ocean hurried in, and we lost a fifth of our geography. More than 14 million souls found their ways to heaven's rolls with the coming of the great Nebraska Sea.
1: That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits.
0: Two guys from Milwaukee.